we are, are going to do a special sermon today in light of baptism. It's a reminding sermon. We're going to step out of the book of Luke because we believe from time to time it's helpful for the church to orient itself to certain doctrinal truths. And so today, we are going to be reading through Matthew, or from the end of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, a passage commonly known as the Great Commission. Now, I'm going to have Joel come up and read the text, but here's just a warning. Some of you guys have been in the church for so long. When I say the Great Commission, you already know it. Maybe you even have it memorized. But I want to remind you today that Joel, or that the, the Word of God is eternal. Joel is not eternal. He is going to die. And it's eternal in that it will last forever, but it's also in it, it, eternal in that we can learn from it forever. The Christian needs to be reminded, but the Christian can also be blessed by old texts of Scripture that bring new revelation and new light. Would you prepare your hearts at the reading of God's Word not to just think, oh, I've read this before, I don't have to listen. Okay, Joel, come on up. Please stand as we read from uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 28. All right, Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on, and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. This is God's Word. Won't you pray with me? Father in heaven, we give you thanks this morning for the many, countless, immeasurable gifts that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, that the new covenant has come before us that we are no longer scratching and clawing in our own efforts to try to obey the law, but rather you have from the cross to the resurrected tomb enacted a new covenant, that of dependence upon your spirit and an expanding kingdom. And so for that, we just say we thank you, Lord, for who you are and all that you've done. We pray, Lord, for those around the world that have received this call of the Great Commission, and they are in different um, parts of the world, different languages, different cultures and tribes, and they are proclaiming the Gospel as we should be to our own neighbors. May it never get old, Lord, that we would look to somebody, a stranger or a friend, and say, have you heard of Jesus? Do you know what He did? Lord, You have put that commission in our heart. That the story of your son would never become old and dusty to us. We pray too, Lord, for the new life that we will demonstrate and see today through baptism. We thank you, God, that you have blessed this church with a reminder once again that you are a God who keeps his promises and you are doing the work. That I am not alone as a Christian and yet there's another and another we thank You, Lord, even for the worship this morning to hear the voices of the redeemed call out to Christ in heaven to worship You, God, with the angels. What a remarkable thing it is. We pray now, Lord, just for our church specifically, that our hearts would be prepared for the Word this morning. We pray for all the things that are going on in this 
complex body, which we're not very many people, but we have a lot going on. We pray for the, the Souter family and, and this, this foster situation that they are in. We pray that you would give them strength, that the community of Christ would surround around them, that they would know that we are cheering them on as missionaries in the gospel. We pray too, Lord, for Beth. We pray, God, that we would see this, this house and this car come to fruition. We pray, Lord, that there would be no hiccups, that there would be a testimony that You still care for all of us and that there's no such thing as too far gone. This is our sister. She is our friend. She's a member of this community. And we ask You, God, would You make this thing happen for her and let it be a testimony to us? We pray, Lord, that these words would not be old to us, but would You kindle them afresh, not only in our mind, but in our heart. And it's in Your Son's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to say thank you for that. You know, typically when I prepare for a sermon, there's parts in the morning I get up early and I'm kind of reading and there's things I'm excited to share with you. There's certainly like points where like, oh man, that's a good point. And it's like, ah, I don't know about that point. But this morning it struck me that the thing I was most excited to do with the church this morning is what we just did. Was to pray together. Was to, was to be in one accord and with unity pray to the same fathers. We come, or to the same father. We come from different backgrounds, different places, maybe even different faith traditions. But today, on this morning, we call the Lord of all lords our God. And we got to pray together with him. I pray that that's not just something that's overlooked by us. Speaking of overlooked, I don't know if all of you know, but this church some 13 years ago when Aaron and the rest of the church planning team was putting this, this mission of God on their heart to, to create a local church, they put a mission statement out there. The mission statement is simple. Many of you have heard it. That we, the crossing, exist to make disciples to the glory of God and for the joy of His people. Now, that is plagiarism at its finest. I mean, we ripped that thing right out of the Bible. That place that we ripped it from is actually Matthew 28. And I think it's important for us to understand that there are some churches that are designed around the idea of you, the congregation, going to get something. This church here, we exist to make something. Now, sure, we receive the word. We receive fellowship. But that is not, by and large, why we are here we exist to make disciples. In other words, beloved, we're here to work. It's a work that's impossible for us. It's a work that can't be done by human hands and in human flesh and with a human intellect. And so the question remains, how do we do it? Now, some of you guys, you're thinking, yeah, I know that we're on mission and I know that we exist to make disciples some of you have been in this church since it was founded. You've heard that mission statement every Sunday for years. But do you feel like you're on mission? Does your life actually measure that way? Does it live out in that way? I think a lot of us, maybe not all of you, but some of us come on a Sunday morning and we get ready to hear about the Great Commission and it dawns on ourselves when we evaluate our own lives that our lives look a lot more like maintenance than they do mission. 
a lot more about sitting and letting God do it rather than going. We see baptisms as an old religious thing rather than new life. And we would way rather, way rather listen to the next podcast to learn something than to go out and take the risk and responsibility of teaching someone. So here's my prayer. I pray that the Holy Spirit will use this passage to new and again refresh you and encourage you that God is not far away, that you are not useless, and that He would remind you that if you would die to yourself again today and surrender to a resurrected Lord, He will show you that the desires of your heart are actually shaped in such a way to glorify Himself. Now I want to do it in three simple ways, right? So we're going to break this passage down into three sections. You can kind of thumb through this. Verse 19 is the authority, or pardon me, verse 18, authority only God can claim. Then we see in 19, in the first part of 20, a command only God can give. And then finally, the second part of verse 20, a comfort only God can offer. So, Number one, an authority only God can claim. Let's read the text here, if you will, starting in verse 18. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So just to catch us up, Jesus has entered into this world through the womb of a virgin, lived a perfect life, accused of crimes he did not in fact commit, died on a cross, and then three days later, he resurrected from the dead. And he gathers these scared, petrified 11 teenage fishermen and he brings them together and he puts them on the side of a mountain in Galilee. And it says that when they saw him, they started to worship him. That's the proper response. But some, as many of us do, they see Jesus coming and they're still doubting. He gets up on this mountaintop and you've got to think, what's he going to say? And he begins with this phrase, all authority has been given to me. Now, here's the first thing I want you to realize. So quickly, we can, in our own minds, jump to Jesus speaking to us about the Great Commission. And that is true. The command that He gave to the disciples is still the command that He gives to you and I, the believer. But it didn't start that way. And this is an encouragement. You'll miss this if you're not paying attention to it. There was 11 knuckleheads on the side of a mountain. And you might be thinking, I don't know if Christianity and the way that we're seeing in the Bible will work. It's kind of old hat. People, There's a new age and people have seen the Bible for so long. We need to create new ways of, of kind of thinking through the Scripture. I just want to remind you that 11 teenagers trusted that God was actually, or that Christ was actually in authority, obeyed His command, and 20 centuries later, you and I are sitting here because of their obedience. It works. He said it to them, and if you're going to change the world, 11 teenagers ain't the way to do it. You've got to have advertising campaigns. I need an airplane. You've got to think, he could come at any point in history, and he came to this like uneducated, not technically versed people group. And he changed the world. Because they obeyed and trusted that He in fact had all the authority. Now, this isn't a claim that Jesus is just making all on His own. Turn, if you will, to, to Daniel chapter 7. 
About 700 years before Christ makes this statement, you hear this from Daniel in a vision. I saw in night visions and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man. That's Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that cannot be destroyed. Jesus walks on the stage of this mountaintop to these 11 people and he says, all authority is mine. Now, this is something we quite understand. Me as a dad, right? The kids are playing in the bedroom and the oldest son is kind of running roughshod over everybody else. He is, if you will, holding court. He thinks he's the boss of his little kingdom. And then dad walks in the room. And I've been endowed with more power and more wisdom and more authority. And I have the right to spank you. And so what happens? Now all the authority that this little son thought he had is in fact realized, oh no, wait. There's a dad in the room. And so how do we apply this? First, beloved, I want you to realize that Jesus raised from the dead. How does He have authority? Because death couldn't hold Him down. And if you raise from the dead, you win. You get to be the boss. If death can't hold what everybody else is going to suffer in death one day, if death can't hold him down, he gets to be the one that sets the rules. He gets to be the one that determines your thinking. He gets to be the one that says this is the way it is, and that in fact is the way it is. Because there's an empty tomb. And because there's an empty tomb, we cannot believe that Jesus is just my Savior. He is. He saved you from eternal damnation. He rescued those who would believe in Him from their sins. But He's not just your Savior. He's also your Lord. He has all authority. Are there parts of your life that you get to hold back from the Lord? What you're saying when you do that is that He is not in fact your Lord. Sure, we don't want to go to hell. We like the sound of heaven. And all we have to do, believe it's an easy thing. But that's not what Jesus is saying in His Scripture. You can be, He's willing to be your Savior. There is not one person in hell who did not want to be saved. He will save all that come to Him. But it comes at a cost, a great cost, in fact. It will cost you your life in exchange. So if He is the authority and He is your Lord, in other words, you side with Him, how do we apply this? Beloved, we don't have to be afraid of man anymore. I don't have to concern myself with the, with the wiles and the, and, the, and the concern of this age. I don't have to be dependent upon the opinions of other people because I don't serve them. I have a King. And His name is Jesus. And my life is is His. And if I'm in obedience to Him and you are against that, that is not an issue that I have to deal with. Shouldn't that be encouraging for us? Well, how do I live a life on mission? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because you have a Lord. And your Lord can't die. That's a pretty good Lord. Isn't that helpful for us this morning? And maybe you could say it like this. Jesus declares that He in fact is the King. And then He makes a decree. He makes a decree, and we find that 
in verse 18. Pardon me, verse 19. The word go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Who Raise your hand if you've heard this verse before. Okay. We're going to go deep then, because I know you guys are familiar with it. I don't have to do much briefing. little language question for you. There are four verbs in this statement. Go, make, baptize, and teach. And the question is, we understand the Greek is to try to figure out which is the weightiest or heaviest verb. And the way you would say this in your English class is, where is the principal verb? And most people would say the principal verb is, of course, go, because it's the first verb. But actually, that's not true. The going is dependent on the making. The baptizing is dependent on the making. The teaching is dependent on the making. So here's, here's what God's command is for you. He says, make disciples. I'm the king, and here's your order. Make disciples. How? Three actions. Go, baptize, and teach. Now, let's go through these really quick. So we're going to make disciples. The first thing is we have to go. The word for this in short is evangelism. To evangelize. To share the good news. And a lot of times when we think about going, we're talking about going across the sea. Brothers and sisters, I'm just asking you to be willing to go across the street. I got a bunch of college kids here. I'll be honest with you, friends, that I am like pulling the reins back to do some teaching because they want to go out to the nations. They want to go out to their dorm rooms. They are like, I'm like holding them back so we can get some doctrine in them before we go send them out to change the world. And there are other people in here that I am trying to wave on to talk to the person in the cubicle next to them. You want to make disciples? You want to obey your king? You have to go. In the church, we would say this is where you live, work, and play. The term here in the Greek is kind of the phrasing of the word is as you go. Go where you live and make disciples. Go where you work and make disciples. Go where you play and make disciples. And if heaven allows it, go to the nations and make disciples. But you and I both know, man, there's a difference between going and going. Some of you get up in the morning, you go to work, you go to school, you go to lunch, you go to a movie. But there are others who have received this commandment in their heart. It's the part of their soul that they have feels like they want to give back to the Lord and act of obedience. They're not just going to work. They're going to work. You know what I mean? Christian, it's okay to have an agenda. In fact, I believe we've been demanded to have one by a king. My relationships are not just people I bump into. Because under the lordship of a sovereign God, He knew where I was going to be and when I was going to be there. And in fact, maybe He put me in that cubicle to talk to that person about the resurrected Lord. Now, it doesn't always just look like preaching. Sometimes it looks like a baked meal or a letter or an invitation to go play hockey or basketball or cards. But there is an agenda Maybe you say it like this. Are you salty? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that He wants us to be salt and light. 
that you have a distinctness in the world. And if you go into the world and you don't act salty, what use do you have? In other words, what's the difference between you and any other pagan walking around the world? If you are the light of the world and you hamper that light underneath, underneath a basket, can you say you're going? Are you really going? Here's just a practical idea for you. I think there's like 58 days between how, or, or, or 67 days or something like that between Halloween, Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas, New Year's, and now. You have four cultural opportunities where people who don't know each other are like super willing to dress up like weirdos and put ugly sweaters on and paint stuff on their face and go and hang out together. Are you going to go trick-or-treating or are you going to go trick-or-treating? Don't just go to dinner this Thanksgiving. Go as a person with a king who sent us on a mission. Does that make sense? That's a commission for you guys maybe this morning to think about. And the last thing, or pardon me, it says that we are to baptize. Not the last thing, the second thing. We are to baptize. This is an obedient to our faith. Baptism doesn't save you, but I will say, brothers and sisters, that the New Testament puts baptism and saving faith really close together. They are not the same thing, but they are a close thing. And some of us want this idea of tradition to kind of be done away with. I want to show my love to Jesus by wearing a ring or putting a necklace on or wearing a funny t-shirt. These things aren't certainly bad. and they're not, We're not saying you can't do those things. But don't you want to obey Jesus the way He asked you to obey Him? In fact, consider this. That the baptisms we're going to see today connect us not only to each other, but to 2,000 years of people making the same statement of faith. The same outward expression. It's the same thing. It doesn't need to change because God does not change. I'm connecting myself to the same baptism that Jesus Himself was in. That has real weight and help for us. Some of you guys, you want to be baptized, but you want it to be cool or special. And it is significant. I want it to be that too. But you don't need a white robe. I don't need a cool river. I don't need certain people to be there. But in front of the body of Christ, the believers... You need to know that when you are baptized in obedience, the angels in heaven are singing. Read this, if you will, Matthew 15, 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Baptism is glorious enough all by itself. It doesn't need to be special. Here's what I want to say, guys. If you're a believer, in, seriously, if you're a believer in this room, I've been praying for this all week, but you haven't been baptized and you're kind of wrestling with like, oh, should I or should it be special or should it be this or that? I want to refer you to Acts chapter 2. These knuckleheads went out, these 11 disciples, they preached, people obeyed the word, 3,000 of them. And that day, they were baptized. If you're a believer and you're wrestling, there's no better time than this. Let's go and do it now. But maybe you're not. Maybe you don't have this relationship with Jesus as your 
Lord. Maybe you're wrestling with the idea that I think He's real, but I don't know if that has any significance for me or for eternity. I would just say to you again, you can have your thoughts, but there is in fact an empty grave and no one's been able to find Him yet because He isn't there. And if that is true, I just beg of you to consider yielding yourself to a risen King. Taking your faith, your trust, and pressing it onto Him and He will trade you His life for yours. And you will be granted, accepted into the Kingdom of God. Maybe today is not only the day of salvation, but it is also the day of baptism. What a blessing it would be to the body to have somebody with enough courage to say, Lord, I think that this is happening to me. Come and speak to me. Or where's uh, Daniel? Daniel, put your hand up. Come speak to Daniel about if this is something you would really want to do. What a blessing to the body it would be if there was a person who would step out in faith like that. And then it says was to teach. We baptize and then we teach. He says, teach. Look at your word here. He says, teach all that I've commanded in the Greek. It means all without exception. You want to know why people can't stand Jesus? Because he says all the authority is his and you have to obey everything he says without exception. There are parts of you that maybe wrestle with Jesus's political opinions on things. That's not his problem. That's your problem. I don't bend him to me. I bend me to him. I am taught by the great discipler Jesus, and he informs our opinions. This is what growing up looks like. Teaching, though, is not an equation, it's an expression. Some of us are hindered from teaching because we think we don't know it all. I don't have it figured out. I don't know how to solve the problem yet. I want you to consider parenting. We have a lot of little babies in here. When Samuel was granted to me by the Lord on the day of his birth, do you think I had parenting all figured out? It's not an equation. But you better believe it. I was going to obey the Lord. I was going to raise this baby up. And I'm going to teach him along the way. I have a dear friend, Chris Jones, and he hates when I call him out, but I remember being a young Christian and he wasn't my disciple or he was just my brother in Christ. I'd been a Christian for like 11 seconds and he'd been a Christian for 12. And there I am in the cafeteria at our university and I'm telling some snide joke and he's looking at me with a spoon in his hand going, you can't do that. He's instructing me. He took the, this, this commandment seriously. This commission was his and I wasn't his pupil, but he was commanded to teach. And so when a preacher was necessary, he spoke up. Hey, brother, you can't do that. So then, oh man, this is going to be hard. I, I, I just want to, this is on my heart to share. So we're going to take a little bit longer. We have go, we have baptize, and we have teach. But if I asked you in a quiz to order these, I bet you many of you would say go, teach, and then baptize. Now there's, sir, there's some teaching along the way as we share the gospel, but the pattern over and over again in the scripture is that somebody proclaims the word and when they believe, they get baptized and the rest of their days are a teaching. The rest of their time is a confirming. Let me give you an illustration here. We know that adoption and fostering is a big deal in our church here. We have a foster baby of our own and let's just suppose, you know, this is on our hearts to do. 
Lindsay and I, we adopt a baby. As Christians, we've been adopted, correct? In other words, He gave us our inheritance. He's given us His name. He's given us Himself. And if I were to adopt a baby and say, well, you know, baby, you are, you are into my family now, but you don't get my last name because I've got to make sure that you know what, your, what my last name means and how to live it out. I gotta be certain before I tell the world that you are mine with your last name. Before we have any outward expression. I mean, you can live in my house. You can come to my church. You can eat my food. You certainly have a bed here, but I'm not gonna give you my last name until I'm certain. Man, what a shame. What the Lord does and what a good adoptive father does is he gives that baby his name. And then he whispers in his ear for the rest of his days, this is what that name means. And one day, if God's gracious heart would allow, that child would begin to behave their way their name states. They would walk in a manner worthy of their name. Parents, don't hold this opportunity for obedience back because you're not sure. You think, well, Beck, it's all it's such a risk. The whole thing is risky. It's a faith we cannot see, but I know for sure is there. When you're adopted by Christ in faith, you are given a new name. Baptism is the outward expression or the first act of that new name. Number three. Yeah, number three. I'm going to pause there. A comfort only God can offer. So here we go. God's this great king. He has all authority and he demands you to go and make disciples. And you're looking at the context of what this is in. And you have to be saying to yourself, any person who's honestly reading this commission is like, man, this, this is a lot. My whole life's going to change. This changes everything for me. He rules all of me. I don't get to do anything that I just want to do. It's kind of all for Him. Like, I can't do this. There's too much sin in me. There's too much stuff in me. I want you to see this verse here. And lo, second part of verse 20, I am with you always even to the end of the age. I'm going to break this down really fast. I am with you. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that if you become a Christian, the Spirit of God is traded for your spirit in a moment. It's the seal of salvation. When you become a Christian, you get the Spirit of God. He is with you. And the Spirit of God wants to fulfill the mission of God through you. Here's the way to think about it. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And then He puts His Spirit inside of you. So the one with all authority is with you. Think of a police officer. He's just a man. But when he puts the badge on, that badge is a representation of the total totality of authority by which he carries. You are not the authority, but I come in the name of an authority. And His name is Jesus. So, He's with us. Second, this is my favorite part. Always. Always. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says this, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Great Commission is so humbling to those who are young and they don't feel like they have the answers. I don't know if I can do this. What if somebody asked a question that I don't have the answer? He's with you. He's with you. You don't need to fear man. 
Or maybe you're old and you're aging and you just don't have the energy anymore. Beck, I don't have it in the gas tank. He's with you. He's with you now. I'm a mother and I'm raising these children up and these are going to have to be the only disciples that I ever make because it's just so busy. It's so much. He's with you. He's with you to help you with creativity. He's with you to help you with energy and strategy. He's with you to give you the answers that you need. He's with you all the while. And He will do it. The end of the age. Here's the last one. And this is important for us to recognize. We're almost done here. He says, I am with you even to the end of the age. Here's some things to consider. We won't, he won't be with us forever. Because one day we'll be with Him in eternity. Here's what I'm trying to say. Tick-tock, folks. Time is a moving on. The return of Christ is coming. We don't know if you have tomorrow to talk to your neighbor. We're not certain if that conversation you have to have with your estranged son has any more time available to it. We are a temporary people in a temporary state. But He is coming. Don't make the mistake of hearing the command of Jesus, receiving the Spirit of Jesus, and doing nothing with it. There's a parable of the unwise servant who gets a command from the king and he doesn't do anything about it. And when he gets, when, when the Lord returns, there's this real punishment that goes on. It's not a punishment of losing your salvation. It's a punishment of like, you didn't do what I told you to do. We don't want to be like that. So here's how I'll illustrate it. And we're going to go really quickly here. Imagine, if you will, you're in the prison of sin. And you know the story. The prison door springs open. And someone says, there's, there's a king and he saved you from your death. Jesus takes the blow for your sentence. And then he puts you in a, 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 a car and he says, actually, the king wants to see you. And the king comes to you and you're saying, oh, Lord, thanks for saving me. He's like, I don't want to just save you. In fact, I want to adopt you. And you're just overwhelmed with the blessing that the Lord is providing you. He's saying, you want to adopt me? You want to give me this kingdom? You want me to be your son? You want me to be your daughter? This is unbelievable. And he says, but that's not it. I want you to work for me. And this is where a lot of our students are, right? I want you to work for me. Okay, I'll do anything. You got me out of this prison. I'll do anything you ask me. My life is yours. And this is what he says. Hear me when I say this. He says, I want you to go back into that prison. I want you to go back into that prison and I want you to tell everybody else that I'll do the same thing for them. And the weight hits you. If I go back to that prison, they're going to kill me. They're going to reject me. I am a criminal in the world's eyes. I don't know if I can go back, but I'll do it. I'm not sure if I'll be effective, but I'll do it. And he says one last thing. I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'll go for you. This, friends, is such good news. And that's exactly what happened. What did the disciples do? They walked down that mountain. They got in a room in Jerusalem and they began to pray. And the Spirit came and then confrontation came and Peter stands up and he's on the go. He goes and he preaches the Gospel to a bunch of people who hate him. And on that day... 3,000 people are saved. And then they get baptized. And they don't know what they're doing. 
and they say, well, let's just start hanging out together every day and let's read through the scriptures again and let's minister to each other and let's share our stuff and let's worship God together and we will grow up together. And 200 or 20 centuries later, here we are. Their obedience to God, their obedience to God's word and dependence on the spirit was with them. That's what changed the face of the world. You may be a non-believer and say, change the world. I want you to consider how far reaching the Christian church actually is. You better believe it did just that. So my final question is this. What should we do? You can't say you didn't hear this now. What should you and your brothers and your sisters, what should we do? I pray it's the same. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for your good deed, for your help to us, for your kindness, for your loving nature. We thank you for the commission of the gospel. And we just pray, Father. We pray that in hearts and minds now, we would be convinced of your decree. That we would feel the weight of that command and maybe some of us would go across the sea. Maybe some of us would just go next door. But I just pray, Lord, we are never going to be a a church that comes to get something. But that we would be a people that are in the duty of making something. Amen.